0: Speech Pathology Australia acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia, and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never seated. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors.
1: Hello, and thanks for tuning into this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Mary Woodward, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor for Justice, and I'm coming to you today from Manly in New South Wales, which I acknowledge is the land of the Guringai people. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Eccleston and Emma Egstino, who are child and family workers with Shine for Kids, and they're based at the Alexander McConachie Centre in Canberra. Shine for Kids is a charity which supports children, young people and families affected by contact with the criminal justice system. Now, initially, I was only aware of the work they do with young people who are detained in youth justice centres, because I'd seen that firsthand when I've been working in a um, youth justice centre. But recently, I also heard about the amazing work they do with children and young people who have a parent who's in custody. And I thought it'd be really interesting to explore this a little more, it, particularly in regard to how it might impact a speech pathologist's work. So after what I think is probably the longest introduction I've ever done, welcome Emma and Katie. Hello.
2: Thanks. Lovely to be here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about your roles before we get started?
3: Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, we're both child and family workers at Shine for Kids at the Alexander McConaughey Centre. Um, my background as a youth worker, Katie as a teacher, um, and we provide services uh, to promote family connection. So we provide transport and supervision for children to visit a parent in custody. Um, We also, before COVID restrictions, we also hosted child and parent days four times a year um, in the school holidays. Um, And we also run, Katie runs our Storytime program, and this is where um, parents that are in custody can record themselves reading a story to their child, and we send the book and the recording so the child can listen at home.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Obviously, as speech pathologists, we're always encouraging um, parents to be involved with book reading with their children. So it's it's amazing that that can still happen despite yeah. the physical separation.
2: Yeah, the, the feedback is really that uh, it does strengthen that connection and having something uh, that the child's learning through their education to be practising and reinforced by their parents. And um, I think for the parents too, they get a sense of enjoyment of being able to give their child something during their period of absence.
1: Mm, absolutely. Mm. So this is a particularly timely discussion that we're having because I understand there've been um, parliamentary inquiries in both New South Wales and Victoria this year into um, the needs of children affected by parental incarceration. But I, I think it's probably not something that most speech pathologists working with children has ever really considered. So I thought maybe it would be good, just by way of background, to if you could share what you what you know about how many children and young people this affects, whether there's any additional needs, for example, that might be common in this population?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I can take this one. Um, look, I also, just before I went on, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that we're calling from Nungal Ngambri Land, um, and we, both Katie and I, um, pay our respects to elders past and present. Um, and it's also really important for us to highlight The disproportionate impact that incarceration has on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families. So for non-Indigenous children, uh, 5% will experience parental incarceration in their lifetime. Uh, But for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, that number is around 20% will experience parental incarceration. Um, In terms of how many children currently have a parent in custody, there's no exact figure, um, the parliamentary inquiries have highlighted that there's there's actually no syst- systematic way of collecting this data, but researchers currently believe there's about 43,000 children with a parent in custody and that roughly half of all adults coming into custody are parents. Um, and also that prison populations are rising in Australia, so the number of children with a parent in custody is also increasing. Um, and we, we know that having a parent in custody is an, an adverse childhood experience and for children who have a parent in custody, they are more likely to have experienced other adverse childhood experiences alongside uh, the, their parent being in custody. And uh, in, in terms of health risks, there are high, heightened risks of uh, I guess learning disabilities, developmental regressions and delays Language and cognitive challenges, um, and also more likely to have an ADD or ADHD diagnosis. So um, I suppose.
1: The- so I suppose that you know, if the estimates are forty-three thousand um, uh, children and young people at this time, it's sure. speech pathologists are, are one of the clinicians who may be more likely than others to be working with with a young person. Um, who has a, a parent in custody because uh, because of the increased risk of learning disabilities and language challenges etc so um mm. it, it's certainly something i think that speech pathologists should be should be aware of in terms of yeah. considering that it, it might be a factor for that child yeah
2: if i could it's Katie, yeah. I, um, just something to add there to i think with um speech pathologists being um aware of the role that language plays in uh, behavioural and conduct um, Mm -hmm. behaviour that's presenting um, in the parental incarceration group versus the general population. You're seeing nearly five times more um, in the group of young people with parental incarcerations experiencing behavioural or um, conduct problems and then similar with um, developmental delays. So like you say, Mary, um, it is likely that the a clinician, a speech pathologist would be have potentially have young children and and uh, young young people who are experiencing parental incarceration, but perhaps then're unaware of the way, the impact that has on their family and uh, on the young person's life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very likely that you know speech pathologists will be working with um, a child who's experiencing parental incarceration, but I think I think also, whether they're going to tell a speech pathologist is, is another thing. You know, these families, uh, for all their strengths and resilience, they are also very aware of the discrimination and stigma around having a parent in custody. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they may have had or it's very likely they've had bad experiences with other services when they have shared that there's a family member in custody. And so, yeah, whether whether they're going to tell Um, any clinician that they're working with it's unknown
1: Mm. and I suppose it's possible that the the child may not be aware themselves
3: yeah definitely I mean I I mean anecdotally I can say for the families that we work with um, if the child isn't of school age generally speaking the child doesn't necessarily know that they're visiting a parent in custody Mm -hmm. Um, and then once the child does reach school age that's where they may be less likely to actually share that the parent is in custody because again it's that heightened awareness of the discrimination and stigma around having a family member in Mm -hmm. in um, custody they're quite afraid that their child would be discriminated at at school in particular, yeah, it's mostly at school once they tell their friends. They're, they're quite afraid yeah. of how they'll be treated. Um, so, yeah, often children under the age of eight you'll find um, are, are unaware that their parent is in custody.
2: Sorry, if I could just add there that some parents feel that it's a, um, a protective measure they can take for their child, mm. particularly that um, infant's age, to uh, limit the amount of contact that the parent uh, in the community, exposes the child to in, incarceration, because with the young, with the younger child sharing to all and sundry that mm. that risk of stigma sometimes can yeah. be a limiting factor for the parent in the community, mm. and then feeling that like they have to explain why and feeling that that could lead to um, further adverse experiences mm. for the child when they say they go to prison to see their parent.
1: Yes, I can understand that. So. Given you know we've said that that it's more than likely that a speech pathologist working with children and young people will at some point um, be working with a a child or young person um, affected by parental incarceration, but they mm-hmm. they may or may not know about it. <laughs> I suppose I can imagine that speech pathologists may be sitting there, think listening, thinking, well okay, so how do we, should we find out about it? Should we, should we know? I mean, Do you think that it is important information for a speech pathologist to know? And if so, how? How can they find out? I think it's, it's important
3: to know if the speech pathologist or, or the clinic itself has really clear referral pathways because when we're talking about um, children, and fam- or children with a parent in custody, um, really what we're scoping for is unmet mm-hmm. needs. Um, and so uh, if if there are clear referral pathways, then yes, I think it's very um, helpful to know that the child has a parent in custody. Um, but if there aren't, then you, I, th- I think you're kind of setting up the child and their family for disappointment um, mm. and needing to be aware that, you know, these families could be involved with multiple services and they may have experienced... Um, distrust or disappointment from other services well it's quite likely they have and so you know when you're trying to build rapport with a family you you need to be mindful of those things so so yeah the short answer if you've got clear clear referral pathways then yes I think it's very helpful to know.
1: I can imagine it might also be helpful to know so that the speech pathologist can be more realistic in their expectations of what they can what they can mm. expect, and um, you know, the the family to be able to to do, and how, how they might engage and access the services, because like you know, as you said, there, there may well be um, all sorts of different unmet needs, just as there might be with other with other families, but obviously you know this mm. this is a a higher risk population for that, um, and so you know if the if the speech pathologist is setting loads of loads of homework <laughs> um or yeah. is wondering why the person isn't isn't completing the homework or isn't attending etc um um it might be helpful if they're aware that there are other factors that actually are going to be taking a greater priority for for that person at, at the time it actually it reminds me of of a podcast that um has been released earlier this year um season four episode 29 um which in which Laura Kerr, our senior advisor, uh, mental health and trauma, was was talking with some speech pathologists around um sort of screening for or understanding basic unmet needs. And I suppose th- this kind of relates to that, I suppose, isn't it? They talked a lot about um there needing to be clear referral pathways. If you're going to ask questions about it, you need to know who who to direct people to, to support, yeah. but also be mindful of how it might affect your um
3: your, your engagement with the family. Yeah, yeah and I, I actually listened to that episode and mm. it's incredibly helpful, um, the tools that they offer, but also the things to be mindful of. Um, and they do go through kind of more specifically what those unmet needs mm-hmm. may look like. Um, and particularly for the families that we work with, Things like transport is is a really big one, um, you know, and and that that's a massive barrier to just turning up mm. to appointments. Um, even housing, you know, I know for a lot of the families we work with, financial hardship is is kind of the the top need, um, and homelessness. You know, I was thinking mm. about it the other day. I've just this year I've met three women who as soon as their partner has gone into custody, they have become mm. homeless and it's mm. very abrupt. And, yeah. um, you know... I, well, our world has I was,
1: fallen apart. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and they all have children and, you know, children get separated from each other because mum's trying to find somewhere safe for them and not everyone can have, you know, all three children at once. So you've got children that are being moved around constantly Um and so, when when they've got those critical needs, to then address something like, you know, a child's speech needs, mm-hmm. it, it's going to be quite hard. You know, and near the impossible. parental
2: desire can be, well, and it is so often really uh, really strong to have the child receive um, therapy and develop their speech. But just with all those competing needs, uh, it, it becomes um, so difficult. And then, when, like you said about the practical thing, like transport and needing to come to it uh, to a clinician's office, uh, that 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 can be you know, the final straw. And the intentions are good, and seeing how oh, uh, having speech pathologists' involvement in the family could then affect uh, younger children as well, um, mm. the, the, the the way that uh, effective service delivery has that trickle down through a family um, is so important, but. Um, I think it's one of the difficulties of the invisibility of of children as as a victim of crime uh, when their parents are in custody. and Often they're losing. When you have intergenerational incarceration as a factor as well, the um, that the the support mechanism for a family can be reduced to could become sort of threadbare with um, incarceration of siblings or aunties and uncles and grandparents. Um, and sometimes they just suddenly take removed from a child's life, um, yeah, and, exactly. and the caring role and the involvement in a, in a child's life. So um, there can be a lot of loss, but th- these families can also and they and they do display tremendous kind of resilience as well, moving forward.
1: Yes, I think it's I think it's important to stress the the strength and resilience mm. that that mm. these families
2: and i can understand too that as a clinician level of frustration that could be present with uh people doing no shows and um Mm. when Mm. when they have a a huge burden that they're undertaking and doing the very best they can uh that uh, sort of seeking to move a a sense of judgment and feeling uh just kind of just trying to increase compassion for, (laughs) um, for the challenges that the families face and and the children, the, the desire being so strong to help improve the, the child's situation.
1: You know, you said about kind of the importance of trying to increase your compassion for families in this, and I suppose part of that is also reflecting on on our own um, potentially subconscious biases towards mm. working with people in contact with the justice system.
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I know I've had to do this in... Uh, I've, worked with children and families for over 10 years now and I was quite shocked when I kind of looked at myself a bit more and realized what biases I had Um, and look I've been really lucky I've had I've had families call me out on my biases Um, and you know not everyone will be afforded that um, that honesty Um, but you know if you haven't lived the lives that these children and these families have really your capacity to fully understand what they have to deal with or survive day to day you know you you can only learn so much about from from books or from university mm. um, if well, you don't podcast. have that <laughs> yet from podcasts <laughs> if you don't have that lived experience you really don't know and You know, and it's not up to them to, you know, have to divulge every small detail of their lives so that we have enough compassion. You know, that's up to us to just have understanding and just, you know, have that empathy um, and respect that, you know, families are the experts in their lives and, and we're there to give them more resources where they need them, to give them tools that they mightn't have yet. Um but leave any judgment or biases that we have at the door because it will just um, it'll just be a significant barrier to a family being able to access any supports that you can offer
1: mm. Mm. I think that's a really important point. So let's say we've got a speech pathologist who has become aware of that, you know, the family they're working with is affected by parental incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are trying really hard to be aware of their own biases and come from a compassionate um, stance. And what what could or should they do to, to try to help, to try to make their services more effective, to try to support the, the child and family more effectively?
3: could they do? Yeah, so look, I I think in terms of best ways to support families, um, it's highly likely these families are engaged with multiple services. Uh, So making sure that you can find ways to collaborate and coordinate with other services, obviously with the consent of the child and and their family. Um, But yeah, when you provide a coordinated response, you're going to have much better engagement and outcomes for the child and their family. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps with them knowing that they've got that support, you know, because often families will have to do a lot of that coordination themselves, which is exhausting. Yeah. Um, and
1: time-consuming and yeah, stressful. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah absolutely. Um, and look, the, the the Parliament, the Victoria Parliamentary Inquiry, inquiry did recognise that there's a severe lack of leadership in this space and how services should actually be re- responding and so unfortunately it means a lot of ad hoc service provisions mm. um, and so I think services need to understand that it's, it's not sustainable for them to try to fill the gaps um, but they can still be a space of of advocacy and solidarity with families. Mm-hmm. And you can be, I think it's actually important to be really open about that with families. You know, I'm often having discussions with families about I, I wish there was more we could do, but to really highlight that it's not, it's not the services fault. It's, it's certainly not the family's mm-hmm. fault. That There's a system that doesn't have clear governance um, around how to address the needs of children experiencing parental incarceration. Yeah,
2: yeah. If I could add there too, um, in terms of just something pr- practical um, for a speech pathologist engaging too is to try and uh, um, I understand that there there, there may be certain um, activities or homework or practices or dialogues that can be done in a setting like. Um, catching a bus or driving in the car or walking to school and making um, sort of language exchange and practising turn-taking and um, activities like that that is then set up as part of how families can relate to each other. And sometimes too it can be that, uh, that the parents wanting to understand why this is important, um, not that it's up to the clinician to 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 make them understand, but for certain families, they are willing to learn more about um, their children and how their children can be encouraged to grow in a in their linguistic capabilities and how that can have a positive mm-hmm. impact on their education. and well, I actually involvement. I'm and so just on. going
1: to jump in there. Yeah. I actually think that it is the clinician's um, responsibility to explain that to the families. I think you know all of us are going to be more motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and invested in learning if we understand why and yeah, how yeah. so i think i think it's yeah. really important to for for us as as clinicians to explain to the to the people yeah. we're working with whether it's the individual themselves or their families um about why we're doing what we're doing or why we're suggesting what we're suggesting otherwise they'll you know people will think well, what's the point and yeah. you know especially if they've got a lot of other priorities and other needs going on they're not going to prioritize something they don't understand
2: yeah i think my mm. reluctance in um in Being firmer in how I suggested that was um, uh, just with awareness that many of the families, for a majority of their adult life, and perhaps when that, the parents were uh, children and young adults themselves, they've been told from an authority above what to do, and with an awareness of that, that you don't want to, you know, just being conscious that. With another involvement in a clinician and perhaps a desk in between you, <laughs> that that it may come across as um, a parent mm. being, feeling that they this is just another opportunity to be told what to do. Um, yeah.
3: and I
1: guess I think that is a really, really good point. And I guess just to yeah. to clarify, sort of what what I was saying yeah. is, I think that it's important that people understand why. Why you're suggesting what you're suggesting, but it should all ideally come from a position of having shared goals and figuring out together how how you're going to make this work. Because as you say, you know the parent and the family, are the are the the experts on the child and the speech pathologist is going to have a, a you know a different um, perspective based on their training and experience, and it's the coming together of that that helps figure out how to do things, whether it's you know practicing things on the bus or you know whatever it looks like. Um, so it, it it isn't necessarily going to be the speech pathologist just giving instructions. Um, it might be giving suggestions, or it might be sort of saying, "This is what we want to achieve. How can we help? You know, how can we fit that in? How can we make that happen in in your life?" I think I just saying, "I think the rationale is really important for for it to be understood."
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I things like the uh, Observational discourse Mm. Mm. and the using of language to identify what's visually seen, and um, building up that receptive language of how a parent talks to the child, and encouraging more expressive language and things like that. But I I, I do think from um, my time with AMC as well is that sometimes, again talking about biases before, Mm. I know this of myself that sometimes I assume that people process language in a way that's similar to me, and. Mm. Meeting some parents and also our parents in custody are recognising that they have some individuals have had yes. um, have very different experiences of what they comprehend and what they're able to express, and um, just being aware that there is a there, there can be um, a, a difference in how certain mm, words are perceived yes. and, and what they're taking from uh, from an exchange too.
1: What about schools? How do how do schools fit into this? Into the services et cetera, that that are provided?
3: Um, I think I think schools can be a huge, or they are a huge protective factor for a number of children. They they can also be a, a great space to to actually work with children because if mm-hmm. you know if if a family is experiencing homelessness or they've got unstable housing or there's lots of people living in the one house, um, getting to appointments or even if a clinician's doing outreach, home yeah. isn't necessarily the right place, whereas school can be a place of, you know, for some children it's it's less distracting than, yeah. you know, being amongst um, a busy family. Um, and, you know, and, and there's also daycares as well can you know, for a lot of families, um, that's where particularly if uh, dad's in custody and and mum's working and she, you know, has those caring responsibilities still, um, it, it's just uh, it provides space for families to, to deal with the mm-hmm. day-to-day um, issues that they need to manage. Um, and, yeah, it can also be another a good space for children to engage with um, any kind of therapies that they are requiring, I
2: think. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you very, very much there, Emma. That, um, and, and sometimes it's too. It's a, it's like a, a place of constancy and consistency for a child. Um, in that they may be, that they may be experiencing some, um, like a, an external body of routine and. Uh, familiarity, hopefully, with, uh, with the, the consistency of staff members that may be there. I definitely agree that it um, can be very protective, a uh, protective um, um, factor for, for children uh, with high quality care, and also the availability of, uh, of access to, to uh, hopefully sort of, um, staff who have been trained or have had some. Um, Professional development in the importance of language development in those early years and uh, in infancy years at school. Look, and the
3: wow. the other thing to consider with schools though is that it also might not be a it might not be a supportive environment for some children and families because yeah. um, it it can definitely be a space of where children and their families will experience discrimination and stigma. So, it, yeah, it's a tricky one because it is child to, ch- you know, it's based specifically on on that child's needs and that family's mm-hmm. needs. And, and for some, we certainly can't assume that um, daycare or a school is going to be um, a safe space for these families. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have one family actually who, you know, um, dad's in custody and mum's, trying to work and uh she actually got asked for her son because of his um behavioral needs she actually the service asked her to leave to find another service for her son Mm -hmm. and that just brought so much shame on her Mm -hmm. it limited her capacity to work and it also she is left with such distrust of these services that now her son being you know ready for preschool she's afraid You know, she doesn't want Mm -hmm. to send him into a space where he's going to be discriminated. Instead of being offered, you know, tools of how to manage his behaviour, she was just offered judgement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you would think those are spaces where, and she is right to assume that those are spaces where she might have been offered supports but instead she was dealt discrimination, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and that really taints how her and her son will interact with other services.
1: was going to say yeah so so speech pathologists or you know or other clinicians who may be listening to this do need to be sensitive to um to consider that the you know the the experiences that that families may have had with other services
3: Mm. yeah and look there's there's also a heightened awareness from families you know there's much heavier, well, there's a lot of surveillance on families. If they've got a family member in custody, they're more likely to have police checking what they're doing and child protection mm-hmm. services. And, you know, a, a speech pathologist clinic, even Shine for Kids, you know, that is a, a very big problem. It, families feel vulnerable engaging with services because does it mean then that those services are going to engage child protection services? Are they going to go to the police? And I, th- I think you really need to be aware of that um, when you're working with a child experiencing parental incarceration. And, and when I say heavy surveillance, I'm talking, you know. Families will tell you that police will come to their door at midnight and just to ask them a question, you know. No one's being arrested, no one's being, you know, and I've worked with young people for a lot of my life and they and they will talk about police just coming to their door when they're on shift just to ask about something. And I know me personally, I don't think I've ever had an officer just knock on my door to ask me a question.
1: Randomly rock up, no? Yeah,
3: and this is what families are dealing with all the time, and mm-hmm. so they're they're really aware that services might not be places where they can, they can trust as well.
1: Yeah, is there ever um, a situation where a speech pathologist might contact Shine for kids, or is it only something that a family? contact.
3: Uh, yeah certainly um if they're wanting to refer to one of our programs specifically um so if they're looking for a service where you know they can recognize that a child has a close connection with their parent that's in custody then yeah definitely give us a call because um there's a number of ways that we can try and keep that we can support a family to maintain contact particularly during the pandemic you know um, children are having contact with their parents less um, and so Shine's really adapted to that particularly with our story time program but also you know where there's barriers of transport or it's quite common for um, you know partners there may be AVOs in place and they might not be able to actually bring a child in for a visit. Um, whereas Shine for Kids with the authorities from the from the parent, we can bring the child and supervise them during a visit with their parent in custody.
1: Okay. So yes, it's definitely worth speech pathologists and um, familiarising themselves with, with what Shine for Kids might might be able to offer so that if they become aware that that a, a child or young person is affected by parental incarceration they could talk with the family about whether or not they would like them to to reach out to shine for kids Hmm. and just before we finish um i know that that um you know the the research that you mentioned earlier around the high prevalence of of various um additional needs etc from the us i thought that our listeners might be interested to hear that shine for kids has has recently obtained funding for the first Australian study into the needs of children with parents in custody. Um, So hopefully that might help to capture information on the communication abilities of this population. So I think we'll all be looking out for for that with interest. I don't know if there's anything you want to add on that.
3: Yeah, look, um, there's some pretty uh, hardworking academics and advocates out there who've been working, you know, decades trying to have better ways of collecting data so that we can address the needs of these children better more to wow. what they deserve um, and so this survey is has been a long time coming and it's just it's a it's a step in the right direction um, particularly after the parliamentary inquiries highlighting just that real need to be capturing
2: data that um, oh, will Inform policy moving forward. Quantifying can lead, then lead to um, identifying resources and most effective ways of intervention. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting change that um, that's being undertaken there uh, to collect the data that's going to be required to increase awareness.
1: Absolutely. Well, Emma and Katie, thank you so much for speaking with me, and thank you everyone for listening. And we'll be back with another Speak Up conversation next week.
3: Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much, Mary.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.